You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast. All right, well, good morning, and uh, I'm honored to be with you uh, today, and so many of you um, I've been privileged to have a long history with. Um, some in the room I've seen for the first time, others in the room I became your youth pastor when you were 11, um, and you're not 11 anymore. And so, um, at any rate, uh, happy Father's Day to the fathers in the room, and uh, deep uh, thanks for you and a challenge that goes along with that um, as well. Let me give my condolences as well as uh, Father's and Mother's Day is always bittersweet, is it not? Um, many folks in the room have uh, not a relationship with their dad. Uh, their dad is past, uh, dead, or not dead, but estranged. Uh, some of you have horribly dysfunctional relationships with your father. Um, whatever the case may be, uh, certainly... I encourage you on this Father's Day to join me in my practice of uh, making Father's Day about your Heavenly Father because he is a, um, a faithful, uh, faithful parent to you. Uh, he has never left you or forsaken you. Everything that's come to you uh, in your life has been by his sovereign hand. Um, by your judgment, good or bad, right or wrong, um, God is faithful and he's He's a good father to us. So um, I had, um, having the opportunity to come and speak today, obviously I could uh, sort of continue in uh, this exegetical path, which is the book of Revelation. Um, uh, by the way, when your pastor told me that he was uh, endeavoring to preach the book of Revelation, I thought that he was mentally ill. Um, and... Uh, but no, I, I've, I've kind of, he's, been, he's bounced ideas off of me as he moves through um, the, the text. And it's really, really great to hear um, what he's doing. I actually, um, full disclosure, share, share his um, perspective uh, on the millennium, Amil, um, for the most part, really. And uh, really uh, am grateful for a man who is willing to uh, take a look at the whole counsel of God. Uh, it, it's, it's my custom to preach through books, so it's a treat for me today to be able to kind of preach a standalone. I won't be preaching Revelation to you. I'll be preaching about biblical masculinity uh, is, is my task today. Um, so it's a little different because normally I have a text, and the text you go through it sort of line by line as you move through it. And quite to the contrary, this is going to be more of a biblical theology of masculinity. I, I guess that's how you would frame it today. So it's very much a topical sermon, um, not something that anybody in the room is used to. Certainly I'm not used to it as well. But being Father's Day, I think that it, it's, it's redemptive to just take a look at what the Bible says about being a man. Now, of course, let's say you're a woman and you're sitting in the room and you're all of a sudden feeling left out because you want to hear the sermon about biblical femininity and it's Father's Day, right? So uh, the reality is, is that every single person in the room uh, has, has a hand in biblical masculinity. Reason being is because many of you are mothers to sons or you are grandmothers uh, to grandsons, or you have someone who you are close to. You have brothers uh, who this sermon, uh, or or just just this uh, subject matter, is really really consequential to. And so I hope um, that as we talk through biblical masculinity today, that God um, can speak to you through His Word. We're basically looking at a couple of uh, examples to follow in Scripture. It's a 
It's a way we approach the scripture. One of the first things that I ever told, taught Tyson and many others in the youth group as they came along was this is how you interpret the Bible, right? There's many different ways you can interpret the Bible, but you look for things as you're sort of flipping through the text and you're looking for promises to claim and commands to obey and prayers to echo and sins to forsake. And one of those tools that you use to interpret the Bible is an example to follow. Well, when you're coming on to the subject matter of biblical masculinity, uh, there are some, there are some promises to claim about manhood, and there's also some commands to uh, obey about manhood, but really uh, what's the most dominant force uh, on the subject material is what are the examples to follow? And to the contrary, what are the examples not to follow that the Bible give us today? So um, I know Tyson's already prayed for us today. I just want to ask the Lord's blessing as we read his word today. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we... Uh, come to you, we look at you face to face, and we wish you a very happy Father's Day. And we want you to know that uh, you have our love and allegiance this morning, um, and that we ask you as we read your word and approach you through it, that you would bless the reading of your word. God, we are utterly dependent on you uh, for teaching and transformation, for conviction and knowledge, enlightenment, learning, growth. God, we are um, surely um, destined for oblivion without you. God, everything that we uh, have, all of our hopes, God, are set in you because uh, in you we live and move and breathe and have our being. So we pray that you'd sustain us. Lord, I pray that you'd help your church thrive this morning, that they would receive uh, the word that is spoken um, if, if perhaps not the commentary as well, God, we just pray that um, you would bless now, Lord, and that uh, as we talk about biblical masculinity, that we would make much of you, which is where we get our manhood definition from in your person. So we love you, God. Thank you for your presence. God, forgive us of sin. Help us to be the repenting repenters and the believing believers that you've called us to. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, um, so biblical manhood. Um, what in the world is it? And, and so what I'll do is I'll just sort of start off with the premise of what biblical manhood is, um, so that, and then we'll just sort of go from there. So postulate and say, okay, this is a, a working definition uh, over many, many years of what biblical masculinity looks like, and then you can agree or disagree, and then we'll go to the Bible and basically we'll try to make a case for it. Um, biblical masculinity is, if you're taking notes, the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Biblical masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Now, where in the world do you get that definition from? Well, we get it from the person in the work of Jesus Christ. Um, let's just start there, and then we'll sort of go down through my, I've got an agenda right on this manuscript, right? But first, we need to sort of see where we get that definition from. And where we get manhood from is rooted in the character of God. So it is the glad assumption, or someone who takes something, right? So it's the joyful or glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. So immediately we look at the cross, right? Uh, Jesus has created the world through the word of his mouth, perhaps at the speed of light or maybe faster. And here it is. 
and yet there's this massive problem. It's a sin problem. The fall happens. The world is doomed and damned, and there looks like there's no rescue. And, and certainly Jesus uh, looks at a problem that really doesn't belong to him, while the creation does belong to him. Man's sin problem is not his responsibility. And yet he takes it upon himself to assume responsibility for something that is not his, a curse he did not perform. And he says, I'm going to take this issue and this problem on myself. And mind you, the the price that he pays is not just a physical, brutal uh, crucifixion, okay? Uh, that's, That's not what's so difficult about buying you back. What's so difficult about buying you back is the spiritual execution that happened that day. Uh, What was very immaterial or what you could not see was going on was the fury and the wrath of God poured out on Jesus Christ as he's singing through the melodies of Psalm 22. My God, my God, in between the breaths, how, why have you forsaken me? It's not, it's not the Roman thugs and all of their sort of expertise in execution that is Jesus' big problem. It is 10 billion hells on the head of Jesus Christ. Okay, Now that, that is sacrificial responsibility. Uh, I'm I'm not just talking about uh, greater love has no man than he who lays down down his life for his friend. That is biblical masculinity. We'll talk a little bit later about how it is. But when we say that Jesus went to bat for you, if you think as shallow as this is just physical execution on the cross and Jesus is taking sort of responsibility over something that's not his, you have missed the magnitude, the seriousness, the weight, and the gravity of his love for you. And and, and the whole definition, by the way, is going to be botched for your masculinity and this definition of what the nature of the term sacrificial means anyway. The, uh, the most difficult passage in the Bible, men, get ready. If you did not bring your seatbelts, you'll need to ask for one, okay? Is husbands, is Ephesians 5, 25 and following. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This, is, this, this, this may be the most practically heavy scripture for commands to obey in the Bible because of the example of Jesus, right? So we say that manhood is rooted in sacrificial responsibility. Uh, we have the example of Christ to go after. This is not an elementary bottom shelf Amateur uh, sacrificial responsibility. This is a uh, divinely inspired, um, divinely exampled um, uh, definition given to you. That's that's what it is. So, with that said, uh, men, it is our responsibility to assume responsibility, and not just to assume responsibility, uh, but to sacrificially 
assume responsibility. That's hard enough, isn't it? Right? I mean, many of us men, let's be honest with ourselves. Let's sit on my back porch together and talk about the fact that most days it's hard just to be responsible for ourselves, much less for anybody else, much less to sacrificially take responsibility for anybody else, much less to gladly sacrificially be responsible for someone else plus ourselves. Thanks a lot. Happy Father's Day, Byron. Right? Is that, is that how this is supposed to work? Uh, it's, it's very difficult to understand um, the nature of it because it just seems so overwhelming. And so if you leave today, let me just say this. If you leave today uh, through the door uh, and you're just thinking, uh, well, this is my responsibility to go out and do it, and you've got all your masculine testosterone-filled uh, brain grit, you know, and you're going to just go do it yourself, uh, then you've missed the point of the passage. Uh, and you've missed certainly the, the, the point of our talk today. And that is this. Um, there is only one who can be so sacrificially responsible. And there is only one who can help you with it. Fortunately, he's given you the Holy Spirit of God to obey him today. So it is. So if, if you leave guilty here today, uh, uh, then it, it's, it, it's your own fault. Christ may want you to leave here convicted um, and challenged, but he certainly does not want to leave you here under a really, really, really heavy weight. I mean, the, the same God who gives us the definitions for biblical masculinity looks at the world and the church, mind you, and says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, so uh, the heart of biblical masculinity is, is uh, benevolent. It's kind. That's, that's what it is. And if we look at biblical masculinity, I, I think a lot of what it comes down to is uh, we see that man is really responsible for things around him. Men, let me just tell you what, what you're responsible for. You're responsible for protecting and providing. This is really obvious as you're looking through uh, the scripture. Right? I mean, this is innate in every man, what, what he is supposed to do. Of course, feminism today, uh, this is not going to get political. It is going to get philosophical, however. Um, uh, feminism is uh, running rampant, of course, in our culture because it says that God has no distinctions in the world and, and thus society should not between men and women. And of course, this is wrong. Uh, your pastor, my principal, uh, crafted a masterful catechism for our kids. If you don't know what a catechism is, it's a, it's a question and answer structured theological learning system where you have you know, standardized questions and answers and teaching them about the truths of the Bible. And one of those that he put in there talked about the proper role of a man and a woman. And of course, uh, men are not at all uh, superior to women. They've just been given different roles, haven't they? And, and that's really, I think, what the Bible put fo puts forward um, as uh, the Bible says the man is the head of his wife. By the way, uh, the scripture also says that the father is the head of the son. Does that mean that the father is superior to Jesus? That Jesus is less than the father? Well, no, no way. And of course, God puts that definition in there to clear up any misgivings uh, kind of uh, that, that you may have in in advance. So we were glad to look at feminism today with a lot of love and say, hey, uh, yeah, God has created man and woman, but they have special roles um, that God uh, has ordained and special, they have a special relationship to one another. Are they created equal? Almost oh, certainly. Are there a lot of men that like to uh, abuse the Bible um, and making less of women? Oh, certainly 
there are, but we uh, certainly need a good view of family government, um, and I think that that will certainly help us as we continue to look at masculinity. Maybe the greatest um, sort of contrast that we can make this morning in trying to shed light on what masculinity is is not just bringing up feminism, but more importantly, let's talk about cultural masculinity. Let's talk about that for a second. So what is cultural masculinity? Uh, for, for those, so cultural masculinity would be um, what does the world say that it means to be a man? Right now, I'm from rural Arkansas. For those of you who do not know, um, so I have a very clear cultural definition in rural Arkansas of what it means to be a man, and, and it may coincide with with the Georgia culture. So we'll just talk a little bit about what it means. Uh, in the South, in order to culturally be a man, uh, you need to grunt often. Um, you need to be obsessed with MMA, uh, violence, uh, sexist jokes, grilling, outdoor adventures, sports, craft beer, etc. Right? Uh, this is cultural masculinity. That's that's what it is. Now, question: Is there anything fundamentally wrong with a four wheeler and mudding? Of course, there's not. There's nothing wrong with it. It's the representative from the great state of Virginia gives us a gives us an amen. Okay, so, yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with any of these things, actually. Fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with in, uh, enjoying them. And, and, and men are predisposed to loving the outdoors, right? Um, liking things, right? But unfortunately, we found a lot of our identity, we're taking our cues on who we are and our identity in terms of masculinity from the culture rather than from the Bible, which says actually all these things are nice and they're good, but really what a man is is someone who takes responsibility for himself first because he can't take responsibility for anybody else if he's not taking responsibility for himself. It's a good theology of work. No one's ever studied theology of work. Do it. It's important. Um, but also take responsibility for someone else. Um, there is a cultural phenomenon um, in America. It's called the man cave, isn't it? Right? And, and of course, uh, I, I actually, there's some people in the room really offended here because you think, oh, the pastor is going to annihilate my man cave. And that's actually not what I'm here to do today. But I, I, I am to show you maybe what the man cave says about you and what it says about America. Um, first of all, I, I think man caves are nice, um, by the way, because can we just be honest? Sometimes a home can be a pretty effeminate place. Is that fair? Is that fair? Okay. Uh, sometimes it can be a pretty effeminate place. Now, somebody is, you're really offended already, right? But many men, they, they, they need a shop. Uh, Tyson has a garage. They need a man cave to go to, right? Uh, to sort of kind of remove himself away from others. And, and that's great. I, I think it's good that you maybe have a little bit of time alone. The issue is, and the problem is, is when we worship uh, sort of entertainment, our man cave, our time, and, and then really in that man cave, when we find ourselves and so much of our time and so much of our life uh, in, in whatever actual or virtual man cave uh, that you can find, uh, we find ourselves neglecting our responsibilities upstairs or indoors or elsewhere. Does that make sense? Right? So a man cave is great as long as you're not sacrificing your time in said man cave to be uh, sacrificially responsible. That is to say, 
um, do you check out when you come home? Uh, or are you sacrificially responsible uh, as Jesus is sacrificially responsible for us? So what does the Bible say also about cultural masculinity? Um, well, the Bible talks about cultural masculinity when it talks about Solomon, does it not? I mean, is Solomon not the man's man anyway? Rich, powerful, more than anyone in Israel, the son of the great King David, who Israel's flag still bears his insignia. Uh, I mean, this is, this is significant, notwithstanding the fact that the man literally had a thousand women. Uh, this is an issue, right? Big issue. So the culture would look at Solomon and go, this is a man's man. He's, he's powerful, uh, political, handsome, wise, lots of women. This is, Solomon is the perfect example of biblical masculinity. And of course, the Bible says about him over and over again, uh, for his heart went wayward, right? Um, he was, in, in the end of all days, he was an idol worshiper. That's, that, that's what, he, what he became. And he sort of shirked his responsibilities for being uh, responsible for his own self, much less anybody else, because of the great idolatry that was in his life. Or maybe we can look at the example of Samson. I mean, is Samson not the man's man, right? I mean, this is for those of you who are in Sunday school uh, back in the 80s and or 90s, any, nobody's even old enough to remember this here. Uh, maybe Tom. Um, uh, flannel graph, right? Uh, we have the flannel graph. Yes, we're getting some shaking heads. Good. Flannel graph of Samson. He's the man's man, right? He's strong. He beats armies with a single blow. Uh, he's, he's a man's man, right? That's, that's exactly what... What is when we think about manhood, oftentimes in the Bible we may think about examples such as Solomon, such as Samson, but the truth is, is that this is not, this is not manhood. This is not masculinity. Uh, these are actually both Solomon and Samson, so that they have, have in common is that they are men who are slaves to their own impulses. You understand? They are slaves to their own impulses. Did anybody uh, sort of relate to that? I'll raise both hands, one for me and you, right? Of course we can. Um, of course we understand the nature of being slaves to our own impulses. Um, and, and yet there is no room in the, in the life of a biblically masculine man uh, for, uh, for us to be slaves of our impulses and live lives that are characterized by the consequences of all of um, our shortcomings in, in, in terms of that. The, the, the typical American cultural masculine man is is really obsessed with his own glory. He's a hoarder of glory. That's, that's what he does. So, so for example, um, and, and if you're not a hoarder of glory, then you love watching people who do hoard glory. Let, let's give an example, a football game, right? Uh, the individual runs into the end zone and literally you have chill bumps because another man ran into the end of an end zone. Really, this can happen, right? And so let's say, I'm, I'm not a glory hoarder. That's not who I am. No, but you do love glory hoarders, don't you? And there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with loving football, right? But there is something wrong with misplacing our good definitions and our ideas identities about what proper masculinity is, uh, sacrificial uh, responsibility for someone else. Um, it's very, very important, I think, that we don't let our sons, if I can just preach at you for a minute. Can I preach at you for a second? Do I have permission? I'm going to need a head shake. Okay, good. At least you. Wonderful. So it, it's important that you don't let your sons uh, get away with things and enable them. It's important that you give them consequences, right? Um, 
so I, I teach with Tyson and have the joy of being able to get up every morning and not only pastor my church, but also teaching eighth graders, 13, and 13 14 year olds, systematic theology every single day of the school year, right? But my goal is not really to teach them introduction to systematic theology. Uh, my goal is uh, to, I'm wanting to impart that information about Jesus, teach them about the nature of God, that God loves them, teach them about the nature of the gospel and Christology, all that it comes with. But I'm also wanting to show them something. I'm wanting to say, hey, you need to take responsibility for things that you need to take responsibility for. So Tyson knows well, and any other educators in the room would know well, that classroom management is everything. you know. And uh, I'm not interested really in punishing young men or women for that matter. Um, but when I go to the hallway, I'm not looking to do behavior modification. I'm not. I'm wanting to speak to his or her heart, okay? And in the situation of a, of a young man, what I'm wanting him to do, I don't want him to be perfect. He's depraved. He's going to sin, right? He's going to continue to sin. He's going to see me sin at the front of the classroom. Uh, so I, I don't want him to sin. I want him to fight sin with me. We want to do that together. That's all good. But what I, more than anything, I want him to take responsibility for it and not say, hey, I didn't do it or, or get out of it. Now, uh, later today, I'm going to call my dad, and my dad is a godly man. He loves Jesus. He has loved my mother for 43 years. I, I'm, I'm forever in his debt. He's a, he's a great father to my wife. He's a great granddad to my little girl. Um. But as a narcissistic firstborn, I was overindulged. Seriously, seriously, I was overindulged, and I was hidden from a lot of my consequences. Gosh. And, uh, you know, the old saying, it takes 40 years to grow a man. That's absolutely the truth, especially for narcissistic firstborns, right, if we ever get there. Um, and I, I wish many times, and, 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 and my parents were hurt. I mean, they, they did use uh, discipline with me. A great deal. But let me just plead with you parents, if I can, um, to, um, to not, uh, n- don't shelter your kids from consequences. Um, we, uh, we, we've enacted a rule at our house. I also use the rule uh, with Tyson in, in the hallway with our kids when we're talking to them about disciplinary issues is that, look, we're trying to get through these things because there are consequences that we can keep you from now. But life is going to happen, and there are going to be things that we cannot keep, we can't keep these consequences from you. And so it's important for Tyson and I to let them feel the weight of the responsibility and to teach them to take responsibility. Because, of course, the question is if they don't do it now, when, pray tell, are they going to do it? And and, and from your seat, mom and dad, who's going to teach them if you don't? Who's going to teach them sacrificial responsibility? Who's going to teach them that? Uh, here are uh, some practical examples of what sacrificial responsibility um, looks like, if I can kind of get to them here. And I'm kind of going off, off my notes. It's a very dangerous thing. Um, all right, so everyday examples of biblical masculinity, and then we'll get into some of the theology of it. Um, everyday examples of biblical masculinity. Here's one. Okay, and, and please uh, feel free to add them to your notes as you find them. This is everyday, practical, biblical masculinity. I'm a middle school teacher. 
Tyson and I have the privilege of doing lunch duty. That's what we do, right? It is utter mayhem, chaos, and anarchy. Despite the you know, de facto uh, totalitarians at the front of the room, which is Tyson and myself. And, and we're here trying to herd 300 uh, wild maniacs as they eat uh, in all of their hormones and try to get them not to kill each other and to take responsibility for their own actions. And so as they leave, ineb- inevitably, they always leave it in a total and utter wreck. I mean, it is just... To, to see and the sweet two lunch ladies that clean this thing are up for sainthood in the Roman church. I mean, they're, right, they're the greatest women in the world because there are so many. There's just such a mess. And so here's a good example of biblical masculinity. We walk up, Tyson and I do. This happens almost every day. Uh, and someone has left a table uh, just an absolute wreck, despite our telling them when they get up, hey, clean on top of your table and under your table. Okay, And then they're walking by another table, uh, as they come out, let's just say, this is Joey. Okay, we'll talk to Joey. Joey, uh, you see, there's a, there's a apple, uh, an apple on the floor there that, that, that fell up. Could you get that for me and throw it in the trash can? Now, you just tell me what Joey's going to say back to me every day. That's not mine. Tyson, this is the gospel of middle school, right? Um, that's not mine. And I look at Joey with, you know, Amos chapter 7, 8, and 9 in my chest, you know, fury of God with the brow of disapproval. And I say, Joey, pick it up. Be a man, right? What I'm teaching Joey is that I don't care if it's not yours. I'm trying to teach you biblical masculinity. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say, hey, this is... I know it's not your apple core. I know that, but it's disgusting. Pick it up, okay? Um, now, the question, the better question is, do Tyson and I also go around and pick up trash ourselves? I think that's where the example of biblical masculinity comes in for Tyson and I, is that we, they, you know, they see us cleaning up messes that are not ours. Um, and, of course, this is really, really important, except this gets really personal when we put this cleaning up messes are not ours on the adult population at work. Now, this is really where it gets messy. This is where we get meddling and you never invite me back again, right? Um, how can you sacrificially take responsibility at work? Um, here's another practical example of sacrificial responsibility before we get into um, the theology of it. Um, sacrificial responsibility, glad sacrificial responsibility means this. Um, men, let's say you have a stay-at-home wife and she's... Um, been keeping your child and or children all day long or let's say she's a working mother it's inconsequential um and and you come home and you walk in the front door you've worked hard all day she's been up since six you've been up since six and you're both slammed you're just so exhausted you've got uh you've got dinner to eat kids to you know bathe and and put in the bed and you are literally cross-eyed you're so exhausted right amongst a, a billion other things to do and so many men, and let me just gladly throw you under the bus, men, if I can, okay? Uh, and am I throwing general stereotypes out? Absolutely I am, um, unashamedly. Um, many men, when they come home, they want to go, they, they, they just want the luxury of walking into their, to their manor, their house, their castle, and they want to open the front door, um, and they want to sit down in the recliner, 
and they just want to check out. That's what I want to do when I come home. But see, I have a wife who also works for a living. And guess what she wants to do? She wants to check out. We're tired. So somebody's going to check out and somebody's not going to check out. Uh, or both of us are going to jump in there and we're going to help each other, right? So this is what biblical masculinity looks like, Topi. It looks like, uh, I shouldn't have called you that. That was your teenage name, not your adult name. Um, Biblical masculinity looks like you walking in the door uh, gladly. Glad sacrificial doesn't walk in with a scowl. Men, let me encourage you to be, this is just practical theology here, okay? If you have to sit in the car and pray, Literally, if the traffic stresses you out so bad, there's no meeting Jesus on the commute, okay? If that's your story and your excuse, okay, that's cool by, that's cool by me. Then sit in your driveway and pray to the Lord to give you joy. And you walk in that house because you're, you're the head of your household. Did you know that? You're the head of your home. You walk in that front door with a smile on your face, ready to go to work. Because the work that you just came from is really important in, in providing. It is. But it is subordinate to the work that you're about to do when you walk in that front door. Do you understand? Uh, it's important. And I had a dad, thank God, that did that. I, dad, I had a dad who worked tirelessly uh, my whole life, um, more than I will ever work. And yet he was always willing to help my mother with the house. He was always willing to get in front of the sink and wash dishes. He still does it this day. He, he's, he's willing to go to bat. Now, my, my, my family, I mean, you go home to Arkansas, yes, my wife, we have very, very, very backwoods traditional roles of men and women. Uh, generally, back home, uh, men do not get up. They are weighted on hand and foot. I mean, it's really weird. It's like going way, way too far back in time, okay? Um, so, so for my father to be the sacrificial man that he is really gave us a big, huge, shining example of what it means to, exhausted or not, uh, I'm, I'm going to be sacrificially responsible and I'm going to be glad when I do it. So here's, here's some practical theology for you. Let's talk, about, um, let's talk about the theology of it, okay, and, and where this comes from. So we're going to look a little bit um, about headship if we can, um, and understanding what it is. Um, biblical masculinity requires a biblical knowledge of headship. So if you're taking notes, besides all of the preaching that I've been doing so far, let's just write that down if you're taking notes. Biblical masculinity requires a biblical knowledge of headship. It requires a biblical knowledge of headship. So the question is, what is biblical headship? Well, it is something that the church today is utterly laughed at by the secular world. And that is to say, we have the audacity to say that the Bible is true. It's not culture-bound. It's not ancient document, which is completely irrelevant. But when it says that the Father is the head of the Son, the Son is the head of the church, uh, and a man is ahead of his wife, that that means something. Okay, And what we mean by head is we don't mean superior because we, it would be actually blasphemy to say that the father was more superior um, than the son. Just like to say that I am the head of my household does not say that my wife is, is uh, inferior to me. Quite to the contrary, my wife's IQ is much, much, much higher than mine. <laughs> uh, uh, right? I mean, she's, she's incredible. Uh, but I am the head of my household. Um, and 
I would argue your, your masculine role has everything to do with your acknowledgement of your role in your home. That it's your job to protect. It's your job to provide. It's your job to spiritually lead. It's your job to do family worship in your home. It's your job to lead and sacrifice. It's your job. If, if you have a complaining home and you're tired of everyone complaining, you've got to make sure that you're not complainer in chief. That's what you've got to make sure of. If you wish that you had a cleaner house, then you need to get, get to work and start scrubbing because it's your job. That the, 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 the idea of head means you're firstly responsible. I did TJ's and Lydia's weddings, actually. And we preached this very theology of headship right in the middle of their wedding ceremony. Now, I have done wedding ceremonies in the past, and I'll, I'll give the you know, groom and bride-to-be the manuscript, and I go, okay, here you go. And inevitably, almost every time, it comes back to me, and guess what's cut out of it? Biblical headship. I mean, it's like a Thomas Jefferson Bible. I just get scissors, and they just start going to town. They start cutting that stuff out, right? Because I don't like the fact that... Uh, a man is, quote-unquote, first in his home. When we say head, we don't mean superior. We just means he's, he's the most responsible. We mean he's been given a unique role, right? By the way, God the Father did not die on the cross, did he? No, he had a unique role, and that was to pour out wrath. And the son had a unique role, too, and his was to take the wrath and sing Psalm 22 while he did it. Likewise, Cindy has a different role than me. And it's important that if I'm going to be biblically masculine, which asks these two wonderful ladies up here, I'm, I'm not biblically masculine like I should be. They'll tell you, right? Um, then I'm going to have to understand my role as head. So where does the Bible say that man is head of his home and head of his wife? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Ephesians 5.25, the scariest passage in the New Testament. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the, head, the husband is the head of every wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in their husbands to everything. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ uh, loved the church and gave himself up for her that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, etc., etc. Um, Colossians 4, excuse me, Colossians three nineteen. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Um, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Don't, don't. <laughs> Dads, don't irk your kids. Don't push their buttons. Be exceedingly patient with them. Be really easy to please and yet not really ever completely satisfied with the trajectory of your, um, your own life. Um, 1 Peter 3, 7. Uh, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, uh, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. By the way, the reason that the culture starts cutting out passages of the New Testament um, is because they don't understand the Bible. Can, can we just can we 
go down a rabbit trail, Alice in Wonderland here real quick and explain to you why every woman in the room was horribly offended when we just called them, or excuse me, Peter called them a weaker vessel. We'll just do that real quick, okay? This is what this means. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker body, okay? Uh, vessel in the Greek originally means body, okay? Uh, doesn't mean that she's weaker or inferior uh, at all. It just means she has a weaker body than you. And, and Peter is trying to make appeal, saying, hey, your wives have weaker bodies than you. Uh, you should serve them. You should serve them. Uh, many women really misunderstand this, and it's, it's regrettable that vessel is the word that's used because it should be body. All this verse is meaning is that if my wife and I get in a fist fight, I'm going to win. Does that make sense? That's not going to happen, honey. Um, um, so it, it says that's, that, that's, that's the idea. And that as a result of that, the Bible says, it comes out clearly and it says, Hey, husbands, uh, live with your wives in an understanding way, show honor to them. Right? So I am the head of my house. It means I'm first, I'm first to repent. I'm first to believe, I'm first to clean, I'm first to say I'm sorry, I'm first to take responsibility. I am the head. Uh, Men, let me show you just how much of this headship is still left even in our cultures. Let's go to those weddings that we were talking about with the Mercer kids just a minute ago. Uh, With with those weddings that that I did with with the two of of them, uh, as with every wedding, there's always... Uh, three governments present. Did you know that? Three governments that are present there. Speaking of biblical masculinity, this would be a good way of talking about it. Uh, there is uh, a family government present. There is a church government, what we call ecclesiastical government present, and that there is a um, state government present. Okay, So this is, this is where the state government is present. And uh, by the laws invested in me by the state of Georgia, I pronounce you man and wife. That's the civil government. That's where that government's present, okay? The church government is when the minister says, and in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and by the, law, uh, by the laws invested in me by the church of Jesus Christ, which we, always, which we also say, that's the church government. I now pronounce you man, as well, man, and, man and wife. So there's the church government. So we've got state government, civil government. We've got church government. Man, government's important. It really is important. And finally, we've got a family Government. Now, all governments have heads. Did you know that? Who's the head of the family government? The guy who's walking his, his little girl down the aisle. Why, why, why is he walking her down the aisle? He's the head of his family. That's why. He's the head of his family. That's the reason he's there. Now, history books will tell you uh, that it hails back to arranged marriages because women were property, etc., etc. Don't believe that garbage. It comes down to the fact, it comes down to the fact that, that there are three governments present and there's a family government present and dad in fear and trembling in this role because it's an intimidating one uh, to, to live as Christ uh, died for his church should make every man uh, just live uh, in, in, yeah, with, with the holy gravity of the things that we have to do. Walks his little girl down the aisle and says, I am transferring my responsibility of this little girl who is my daughter whatever age she may be, to this man. And he does that as the head of his government. Uh, Now, I never learned that in VBS for whatever reason, okay? Um, 
And I didn't learn it on the flannel graph either. either. But I will tell you this. It, that reality changes my life. Um, it absolutely does. So you, men, you are the head of your wife. Now men, let me tell you, as, as the head of your home, uh, if, if you're going to be biblically masculine, uh, it's important that you are prone, utterly prone to not be biblically masculine. Everybody turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, that very familiar passage of Scripture. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, 7 through 12. Genesis 3, 7 through 12. We're going to go back to garden sins, the, the original garden sin. There's so many garden sins that we learned about humanity and the garden. We can get a good biblical anthropology by looking at it. Um, but what we see, what we see when we go is we see the exact opposite of sacrificial responsibility, which is convenient blame game. Okay? Convenient Blame game. That's the opposite of sacrificial responsibility. That is literally putting responsibility on someone else, throwing them under the bus. And this is exactly what Adam does. Okay? So, uh, and, and by the way, I throw people under the bus all the time. That's really funny. It's not funny, but it's funny. Uh, it, it's, it's horrible that we do this. Um, and I only say it to you to... to let you know, men and women, that we are prone. We are inclined. It is instinctual for us in our fallen nature, uh, which we still have left over to uh, blame others rather than take responsibility for ourselves. Genesis 3, 7 through 12, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Next verse, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and, uh, and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman woman who you gave to be with me. This is convenient blame game. And it is the, it is the opposite, it is the antonym of sacrificial responsibility for him to throw her under the bus, which he gladly did, right? I mean, this is middle school discipline 101, Tyson, isn't it, right? Uh, she gave me uh, fruit of the tree and I ate the modus operandi of most of us is to, at first, our flesh, uh, even if we repent five minutes later, it is to always lay blame somewhere else, isn't it? It's very instinctual, right? This is the reason we thank God for the Holy Spirit that helps us to obey and ask for uh, sight to see what we need to see so that we can obey. Uh, to the singles in the room, let me talk to you guys for just a second. Um, uh, there are some in the room that feel, well, I will be biblically masculine once I get married. No, this is not going to happen. No, it is not going to happen. I will wait and get, I will be biblically masculine once I'm married. No, you have to start that right now. You have to start that right now. Uh, otherwise, you will have your wife raising a boy. Um and teaching you how to be biblically masculine. I can gladly tell you after being married for almost 16 years that while I am grateful for my dad and my grandfather, my wife taught me more about being a man than anybody in the world. 
anybody. She taught me how to be a man. And she shouldn't have had to do that. And it was not okay for that to have happened. And there was much that I sacrificed in our marriage because I wasn't biblically masculine when I got married. Not even close. Um, I didn't resemble any of that stuff. I couldn't spell the word empathy or sympathy uh, until well after I got married. Um, And a lot of it is humorous on the other side of it, but believe me, when you're in it, it's horrible, isn't it? Um, And it's certainly not okay. So the call to the head uh, or, or the call to biblical masculinity is a call to serve and to sacrifice men. Uh, when Jesus constituted his church on a Thursday night, he rose from supper in John chapter 13, and he would be dead in 24 hours. But before he did, when he constituted the church, when he raised his cup for the new covenant, he put a towel around his waist and he went to work. He served. Mark 10.45 says, The Son of Man, even, the Bible says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Masculinity can be full of guys' nights, good times, sports, hunting, all the things and adventures that men like to do. But the crowning achievement of masculinity is sacrificial responsibility and saying, hey, it's my fault. That means when the email comes in your inbox and at work and something went wrong, you're the first one to go, it was me. It was me. Right? All middle school teachers come out. Boom. What happened here? Oh, yeah, it was me. Tipton. Done. Right? It's, it's, it's my responsibility. And yet it is completely antithetical to our nature to take responsibility because we think that self-preservation is throwing someone else under the bus when actually uh, God wants to make us more like Jesus. And that means being sacrificially responsible. Your sanctification, your killing sin, your Christian life, man or woman, uh, uh, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 29, is you looking more like Jesus every single day. God has predestined you, that verse says, to be conformed into the image of his son. Uh, Besides the incredible and infinite example of Jesus being masculine, uh, biblically masculine, of course, we have the awesome example of his dad. His dad, which should have had his betrothed stoned to death, by the way, and divorced her, which, by the way, during engagements in that time, they were called betrothals. There were several different parts of an engagement, but they were actually called husband and wife during the engagement. And during the second part of the betrothal, which they were well into, uh, to cut off the relationship actually constituted an official divorce. And the Bible says in... um, Matthew 1, 18 following, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quickly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You'll bear a son, you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He... Joseph Joseph didn't pick this woman. Betrothal meant that the, the man's uh, parents selected the bride. 
Mary was selected by his, his parents. And he loved her. And he let all of, his, all of his reputation go. Think about the friends and the family that it must have sacrificed to him to have a pregnant betrothed and how that worked out. How did that work out for her? Well, rather than him just washing, or sort of laying her out to dry, uh, throwing her under the bus, he comes out and he takes her and he says, she's mine. I'll take care of her. And not only will I take care of her, I'll provide for her. And I'll protect her. And we'll go to Egypt and we'll go every, anywhere we have to go. Back to Bethlehem, we'll do anything we have to do. But she's mine. And I'm going to sacrificially be responsible for her and the Son of God. And that's what he did. We don't know a lot about Joseph. We know that he's not at the cross. We know that he's at Passover. And we know that he's in the birth narratives. But we know he was a biblically masculine man. He was willing to take responsibility. In conclusion, uh, men, thank you for letting me preach at you. I appreciate it. I, I, um, I really should be on the front row here with you, um, and certainly am. Um, the Bible is clear that you and I have a, a tall order ahead of us, that being gladly, sacrificially responsible is nothing, nothing that's easy. Um, uh, ladies, Please don't go home all day today and, and just you know keep elbowing your husband and go, hey, why aren't you more biblically masculine, right? Um, because after hearing a sermon like this, he a, a man is I mean he he feels the weight of it. He's already getting an elbow over there. It's good. It's from his son. Um, we need to be more biblically masculine, and 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 maybe the greatest verse we can take with us to uh, understand that is to quote Paul in First Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse eleven, when he said, "When I was a child, I thought as a child, I acted as a child, and I reasoned a child. But now I have become a man, and I have put childish things behind me." Thank you for your attention. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would take uh, these ramblings, you could hardly call them commentary, and that you would do what only you can do as a good teacher, and you would make good sense of them in the minds and the hearts of every man, woman, and child, um, and that you could put down deep within our hearts what it means to follow you and be sacrificial, what it means to, uh, for the joy set before you that we could be gladly, sacrificially responsible, all of us, every single one of us, men, women, and children, um, and that we would see our role um, loving you um, as we follow you and abide in you and obey you. Lord, I thank you for this fellowship. I pray for her unity and her diversity as we do all churches. We pray that you would preserve her um, and that you would send her out today in passion and zeal for your great name, um, that you would give all of us gospel opportunity this week, wherever we may be at work, and that we would see challenges from your spoken word as uh, from you. So God, we love you. We thank you for the gospel, for forgiveness of sins, for being our substitute law keeper, um, and for rescuing us, God. We love you, and we thank you for your grace, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.